of a new year, and this is probably the last Sunday we can say that because then we're just into February, but February is going to be the month of love, and what we want to start out today is talking about loving God's Word, and what I have on your table there is just an overview. I have mentioned a couple times that I'm using the uh, uh, the Moravian daily text as a devotional guide throughout the year, and because it's only uh, looking at really uh, two verses a day, plus a, an additional verse for the whole week. Uh, it's something that I'll be able to do on top of uh, or in combined with the 90-day Bible. But if you're not doing the 90-day Bible and you're still struggling, hey, what, what am I going to do? Well, I really uh, uh, encourage you to try this out. It's, it's more for meditation. It's, it's not in-depth study. It's not reading through the Bible. It's really letting God read your heart through His Word. And uh, I, it has just really been a meaningful time of drawing me into God's presence, bringing uh, my struggles, my questions, my heart before Him, and allowing His Word to just really, uh, if I could use this phrase, massage my heart and my mind and bring it in, a, in concordance with His goodness and grace. And so I wanted you, I, I found this, and it's a great, it just describes everything that's on there. And uh, you can look at it, and maybe that'll be a tool for you. But our friend Morgan Freeman is here to tell us a little more about the Bible. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its stories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, Heaven opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. And all God's people say to that, Amen. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? And then when Morgan reads it, it's that much better, isn't it? All right, why don't you turn your Bible to Psalm 19. Everything that uh, you just heard uh, is a great summary and a great introduction to Psalm 19. Apart from uh, Psalm 119, uh, these are perhaps two of the greatest uh, chapters in all the Bible on the Word of God. Psalm 19. And I want to start out this morning by asking you just a simple question, and that's this. How's your love life? Okay, don't... Do, what did you say, Bill? 
Bill's is great. Sandra, how's your love life? <laughs> you really, you, you just, you know, you're, you're stuck there, aren't you? you? You have to agree. How's your love life? Well, listen, that may not be uh, the greatest question that a single, or if you're single again, that you want to hear. So let's, um, uh, but don't worry. This series on I Love Life, that's going to take us through the month of love, the month of February, is not just about romantic love. Although, Mr. Kirk Polo will be addressing the topic, I love my spouse, again, as soon as uh, his lovely life wife writes that lesson, right? How's it coming, Dana? You haven't started? Okay, you're, you're still waiting to... to okay, I just, you're, you're waiting. All right, Kirk, Kirk will address that. I love my spouse. You can see the schedule in your course sheet, but it's more, maybe the better question to ask, and it's there in your notes, how is your life of love? How is your life of love? Because that's really what we're looking at. It's not so much your love life, but your life of love. So how is your life of love? Uh, Let me ask some questions here. We're called uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ to love God with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our body, with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So as you think about God's command, this, this summarizes everything that God requires of us. So how is your life of love? Do you love what God loves? Do you love those that God loves? Let me ask a couple other questions. Are you known as a lover of God or a lover of self and a lover of money and the things that money can buy? a passage in Timothy where Paul addresses and says, basically, either we're lovers of God or we're lovers of ourselves and lovers of pleasure and lovers of money. Do you love the Bible like a love letter from God? Do we love God like He deserves and expects expects to be loved? Do we love our spouses like God has loved us in Christ? Do we love our church like she is the bride of Christ? Do we love what God has done in our past, and are we letting it impact us in the present and for the future? Those are the kind of questions that this series are going to be addressing in the weeks to come. But today, I want to ask you again, how is your life of love? And if you're struggling in that, or you think, you know, I could improve in that, I know I certainly can, then the place to begin is the Word of God. That's the place to begin is the Word of God, God's love letter to people. Now, when I say the Bible is God's love letter to people, don't think that it's just full of mush and mercy. That's not what I mean. It's it's not a gushy book, the Bible. Those of you that are going to be reading through it here in the next three months, and those that are committed to reading through it for the rest of the year, you're going to see some pretty radical, and could I even say racy things, very real things in the Bible, things like murder, lust, revenge, adultery, child sacrifice, rape, incest, and that's just the people of God. Pause for a little humor there. Okay. There's, listen, you're going to find in this book, there's abundant mercy and his burning wrath. There's God's love, but there's also his anger. There's God's tenderness, but there's his toughness. There's the hope of heaven, but there's the horror of hell but it's still God's love letter to a lost and dying world and to his covenant people who know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And no one knew better that the, that the Word of God is God's love letter to His people than King David, uh, who is called in the Bible a man after God's own heart and who wrote Psalm 19, referring to the Word of God. Now listen, you can't be a man after God's own heart and not be a lover of the Word of God. And let me say the opposite. You can't be a lover of the Word of God and not be a person after God's own heart. They go together. And so let's turn to Psalm 19. And it's a psalm that's written by David. It's about the wonders and the worth of the ways that God has revealed himself. And I have in your notes there uh, a little overview. Psalm 19, and remember, the psalms are songs. So this is a song celebrating the joys. and It's a love song. It's a love song written to God about his revelation. It's a song in three parts or three stanzas. Look at verses 1 through 6 there in your Bible. And the verses 1 through 6 begin with this. The wonders of God's general revelation in the created world. Now we've talked a lot about general revelation in our series on is Jesus the only way to God. And you remember in that series that general revelation is general. It's, it's not specific. It's broad. It's available to all people because it's revealed through what he has created, both the created universe and humanity that he has created in his image. It's basically the created world, but it includes our conscience and the diverse cultures of various people groups. Let's read through verses 1 through 6 and think in terms of the wonders of God's general revelation. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Let me just say there that general revelation, special revelation, all of God's revelation is for one purpose, to glorify God, not to glorify us. We don't come to the Bible to get something for us. We come to the Bible to glorify and exalt God. Notice too, verse 2, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard, meaning the, 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 their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The point being this, that general revelation is that. It's, it's general and there's not a place on this planet that you cannot see the created world and therefore see the wonders of God. Look at verse 4. It says, in the, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit is to the other and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I think the reason David points to the sun, S-U-N, is because it's a type in general revelation of the sun, S-O-N, who rules over the universe and from whom the heat of his judgment, no one will be able to hide. And so he's saying, look, the wonders of creation point us to a glorious, glorious God. Now, the second stanza, the second part of this song is verses 7 through 11 that we're going to look at today. And it is the worth of God's special revelation in the written word. 1 through 6 should cause us to, to have awe and wonder 
but verses 7 through 11 should cause us to value the worth of God's special revelation in the written word. Because here's the deal. Special revelation is that. It's specially revealed by God to specific people at a specific time to a specific place. Not everyone has access to it, though God wants us to share it with everyone. It isn't available unless we take it to them. Let's read verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You can write over all of that. The Bible is of great worth. I love God's Word. Now what ends up happening is, verses 12 through 14 is the last part of this song, and you could write over it, worship. The worship of our sovereign Redeemer with a pure heart and pure words. Look at what our response should be to the wonder of general revelation in creation, to the worth of special revelation in the Bible, Here's what our response should be. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock, and my redeemer. Now, I want you to take a look at this. I was in awe of this and and, uh, was uh, lamenting the fact that I have men following me teaching the Word of God, so I could not stretch this out. Take a look at that. Verses 1 through 6, the wonders of creation, prepares us for the worth of special revelation. And when we understand its worth, then our response is worship. Lord, search me. Cleanse me. You are holy. I am not, and yet I want a relationship with you. Isn't that a beautiful song? Can't you just write over that? I love God's Word. Now, let's do some warm-up observations. I just want you to look at verses 7 through 9, and I I want you to see in your own Bibles that there are three sets of six. Three sets of six in verses 7 through 9. First of all, you can jot down, there's six titles for the Word of God. Did you notice that? I would mark them. I'd circle them there in your Bibles. Law, testimony, statutes or precepts, commandment, fear, fear of the Lord, and judgments. There are six titles. Do you see them? Nod your head or say, yeah, yes, yes, I see them. All right. There's six characteristics of God's Word in those few verses. There's six characteristics. Can you see what they are? The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. The testimony of the Lord is what? Sure. The statutes or precepts of the Lord are what? Right. 
the commandment of the Lord is what? Pure, radiant, pure. The fear of the Lord is what? What? I can't hear. The fear of the Lord is enduring. Is it also, uh, it's pure or clean. It's pure or clean. The judgments of the Lord are what? True. There you go. Six titles, six characteristics. And then there are six benefits of God's word linked. So we got three sets of six. Notice, the law of the Lord is perfect to do what? Converting the soul, reviving the soul. This testimony of the Lord is sure, doing what? Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right to do what? Rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure to do what? Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and the result is what? Enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. Slightly different, we'll talk about why. So what you see are six sets of three, six titles, six characteristics, six benefits. And I would say to you that in that we see six and actually we'll come to seven reasons why we should love God's Word. So let's dive into that. Let's take a look at it. I love God's Word because it not only has the power to save me, but it has the power to transform me. God's Word transforms us. The first reason why we should love the Word of God is its transforming power. Notice in verse 7, and these are all from the... uh, English Standard Version you have in your notes. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Here's how I would summarize that. The Bible is perfect for restoring our souls. The Bible is perfect for restoring our souls. Now, under each of these, I've got three points. I've written them out for you so you can just read them. You'll have them. And and basically what I want to do is explain to you the name of God's Word, the, the, the title for God's Word, I want to show you how it's described and then show you the benefit of it, what we just went through. I just want to, it's just, when you get into the Word of God and really look at it and ask questions of it and meditate on it, the wealth is unbelievable. The wealth is unbelievable. And listen, the riches only come to those who dig and work, and invest. So let's look at it. First of all, the law of the Lord means the Bible is God's written instructions on how to live life in a way that brings a smile to the face of God. I bet you when you see law, you don't think of that. You don't think of it as God's written instructions on how to live life in a way that brings a smile to the face of God. That's how we should view the law here. The word law here is the Hebrew Torah. It's not a negative thing. It it, it looks at the entire revelation of God as written instructions on how to live life in relation to Him. That's what the law of God is. It's His written owner's manual on how to live life in a way that will please Him and will be for our good. It teaches us what to believe, our creed. It teaches us how we should be our character. It teaches us what we should do, our conduct. It's all there. And it's perfect. It's perfect. It's a perfect manual. There's no typos. There's no errors. There's no... It's it's perfect and complete. Look at number two. 
The Bible is perfect in that it completely reveals what we need to know about God, about ourselves, and about how to live life in a way that puts a smile on his face and lets his blessings shower down upon our lives. Anybody here want God's blessing on your life? Well, then you've got to be in the law of the Lord, the Word of God, which is perfect. Scripture, here's what perfect means. Perfect, uh, you know, perfect means comprehensive. It reveals all that's necessary for one's spiritual life from God, service to God, and worship of God. It's complete and comprehensive. Basically, the Bible is sufficient to live life in a manner that pleases God. I like what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Listen, you want to be equipped for whatever life's going to throw at you, and you want to be ready to respond to life in the way that God wants, then you've got to get in His comprehensive, perfect owner's manual on life. And what will happen, number three, the Bible transforms us in the deepest parts of who we are from the inside out. Now, in the New King James, it says converting the soul. Most modern translations uh, uh, translate that Hebrew word as reviving or restoring the soul. The reason is, it's a Hebrew word that can mean so many things in so many contexts. And I traced that down. I, I, I traced it down. It's used in the Old Testament. And, and I think I can summarize its uses in four ways. And I really believe that here in Psalm 19, all four of them fit. Because why? It's comprehensive. So let's think about it. Here's what the Bible is able to do. On the inside of who you are, the Bible is able to rescue us from eternal condemnation. It's able to deliver us, rescue your soul from an eternal hell separated from God. Number two, the Bible is able to revive us when we're spiritually dead and insensitive to the things of God as believers. You ever been there, believer? You ever been hardened and and, and, and drifted away and and dead to the things of God, seeming God was a long, far away. You know what you need to do when you feel that way, believer? You need to get back in the book. You need to get in the book. You say, well, I've been in the book, and I've still felt that way. You stay in the book, because it will revive you. You can't keep your face in this book and not have your soul revived. But first, you've got to be rescued. If you're an unbeliever, you must be rescued. And it only will come from the Word of God. Best thing an unsaved person can do is read the Bible. And we come up with everything to try to lead them to Christ, except perhaps the most important thing, would you read the Bible with me? Would you read the Bible with me? Number three, the Bible is able to refresh us when we are emotionally and physically worn out. See, sometimes we're not far from God. Sometimes we're not insensitive. We're just worn out emotionally. Can I hear an amen? Physically, you know, relationally, just in every way. I'm, I'm beat. I'm, I'm worn out spiritually. I've been serving the Lord. I've been loving on Him and loving on people, and I don't have anything more to give. Get refreshed. Get in the Word of God. Number four, the Bible is able to restore us to living 
in a way that brings a smile to the face of God, even when we are broken by the bondage of sin. Hey, is your life broken? God can restore it. So that's what this idea means of restoring the soul. It's from the inside out. In Psalm 80, verses 3, 7, and 9, 19, 3, 7, and 19, this word restore is used three times, and I just want to read this to you. Because this smile on the face of God isn't poetic mumbo-jumbo I'm coming up with. Listen to this from the Net Bible. Oh, God, restore us. Smile on us. Then we will be delivered. Oh, God, invincible warrior, restore us. Smile on us. Then we will be delivered. Oh, Lord, God, invincible warrior, restore us. Smile on us. Then we will be delivered. Hey, you want to be delivered by God? You want him to smile on you? then get into this book. It will restore you from the inside out. I love God's word because it transforms me from the inside out. Number two, the second reason why I love God's word is because God's word makes us wise. God's word makes us wise. He moves from restoring the soul to making wise the simple. Look at verse seven again. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Here's how I'd summarize that. The Bible can be trusted to impart wisdom. The Bible can be trusted to impart wisdom. Now, let's look at this word testimony. First of all, what what is the testimony of the Lord? The Bible is God's testimony to do this. In the Bible, God swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him, He is God, okay? That's what the Bible is saying to you. The Bible is saying to you, this is my word in which I testify to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, I am God. I know what I'm talking about. Listen to me. Listen to me. Here's what it is. You get how to live life from his perspective. That's wisdom, by the way. How to live life from his perspective. The Bible is telling us what God knows what God requires to live in a way that will be for His glory and for our good. And it's, whole, it, it's completely true. Now, what that means is, number two, it's sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Now, that's more than a deodorant. What he's talking about there is that God's testimony in the Bible is true, and it's the only sure, solid, secure stable foundation to build your life on. When something's sure, you can stand on it. When something's sure, you can bank on it. When something's sure, you can bet your life on it and you'll come up a winner. You can build your life on it, your marriage on it. You can build your friendships on it. You can build your hope for eternity on it and it's rock solid The economy won't change. How people respond to you won't change it. If someone betrays you or hurts you deeply, it doesn't change the foundation. If you yourself fail God, it doesn't change the Word of God. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to know? Listen, do you need wisdom right now in your life? you have a problem where you're seeking counsel? Have you already sought out human help to deal with personal, family, or marital, 
or even church problems? Could I suggest to you that the testimony of the Lord is the place to begin? It's sure, it's steadfast. Go with what God says before you make a decision. Let me even say before we start, here's what we do. We got a problem, we come up with a solution, it doesn't work, we get disappointed. We, we, we still have the problem, so we go to a friend. We do what they say, it doesn't work, we're even more disappointed. We go around the circle, and then someone, Lord willing, will say, have you checked what God says? And then you do a V8 commercial. And you're like, oh, I could have had the testimony of God's Word that is sure. Why not, let's start with the Word of God and build our lives on that. But to do that, you got to be in it. Look at number three. It'll make you wise. The Bible was given by God to even to enable even the most gullible person make wise decisions in life. Hey, maybe you're here and you think, man, you know, I'm just not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, I, I, I don't have all the knowledge of a Bible scholar. I don't have all the insight of a pastor. I, I, you know, I'm not like these missionaries. I don't have the kind of faith that they have. I'm, I'm just a simple kind of person. Well, the Bible, when it talks about a simple person, it's talking about an, someone that's so open-minded that their brains have fallen off, and they've lost all sanctified common sense. They're open to everything. It, a simple person is a person who has no filter on their mind, no door on their brain. Every idea is welcome in. Just come on in. Come on in. There's no filter that says, oop, I don't need to hear that. I don't need to watch that. I don't need to be around someone who thinks that way. The simple person lacks discernment, and they linger on the path of destruction. Why? They don't take responsibility for themselves or getting into the Word of God. They don't heed the reproof of others or the Word of God. And they don't repent of the sin like the psalmist did here, David did in verses 12 through 14. You know what the simple need? A daily dose of the wisdom of God's Word and then just apply it. This is what I love about the Moravian text. They are simple little doses of God's Word on a daily basis that will make me wise. Because listen, when I come to these verses, these daily verses. I come with preconceived notions. I come with, with solutions to problems. And then all of a sudden I read God's word. And one day I read, salvation is of the Lord. And all of a sudden I'm stopped dead in my tracks. And I'm like, well, if I really believe that, then I've got to take a whole different perspective to this problem. I've got to take a whole different perspective to this person. I've got to lay down my fleshly wisdoms. I've got to lay down my solutions. And I've just, got to, I've just got to pray and meditate. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, this simple person can get pretty wise in relation to life. All of a sudden, I've got a perspective on life that can only come from the throne room of heaven, that only comes through the Word of God. And all of a sudden, though the fool that I am, all of a sudden, I'm wise in the eyes of God because I'm seeing life from His perspective. That's why I love the Word of God. It helps me to see myself, others, and Him from His perspective. Number three, there's a third reason why I love the Word of God in this passage, and it's this. I love God's Word because it makes us joyful. It makes us joyful. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. Now, there's a contrast for you. Righteousness and rejoicing. God saying that something's right and us rejoicing in it. Usually we're resisting it. Our nature is to rebel against that. Here's how I'd summarize this. The Bible shows us the right path for living life with the joy of the Lord. Let's look at this, uh, this idea of precepts or statutes. You know, that, those are both two words that I'm not too familiar with, but here's what they mean. The Bible contains God's requirements for godly character and right conduct, right, right conduct for His covenant people. You see, so much... Listen, you're, you're not going to love God's righteous requirements unless you love Him, unless you have a relationship with Him. See, His commands, He doesn't give us the commands of the Bible in order so that we may try to obey them to somehow be approved of Him. What He says is, I gave you my approval as a free gift. I gave you my righteousness in Christ, your Savior. It's a free gift. You already do please me. You already are approved by me. I have declared you righteous and you don't deserve it, and you didn't do anything to earn it, and you couldn't even if you tried. But now that you're this way, and I've given you the power to live righteously, now I want you to. And here's how you do it. And that's what brings rejoicing to the heart. Let me read you a couple verses about that where this word precept is used. Psalm 103, verse 18. You might want to jot that down. Psalm 103, verse 18. To those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts, precepts to do them. You see, God's blessing comes to those who know him and then remember his word to do them. Psalm 119, verse 4 puts it this way You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The NLT says it this way, you have, you have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. So here's what the idea, the precepts of the Lord are those specific requirements that God wants His people, who already have a relationship to Him, to live in keeping with His Word. But remember this, that God never commands His people to do anything that He doesn't first give us the power to do. Let me say that again. God never requires anything of His people that He doesn't first give us the power to do. That's why when we run into God's Word and, and, and it says for me to do something, I can't say as a believer, I can't do that. I must say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you want to see proof of that, turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Here's how you got to think about God's precepts. Here's how you think about His Word. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Notice what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved... Okay, first of all, God already loves me. Before I do anything, God loves me. Even when I fail in sin, God love me, loves me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, do what? Work out your own salvation. It doesn't say work for your own salvation. It says work out what I have already put in you. 
Work out the salvation I have already placed in you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wow, God says I'm righteous. I ought to tremble at that thought by, in light of how I sometimes live. Are you with me? God has declared me righteous. He sees me righteous. What am I doing saying that? What am I doing sinning in this way? What am I doing with this ongoing attitude of murmuring and grumbling? Now notice verse 13. Why should I work out my salvation? For it's God who works in you both to will, that's to desire it, and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the beauty of it. God says, this is what I require. Now, well, first of all, he gives us a free gift of a relationship. Then he says, now that you're in relationship with me, this is what I require. And by the way, I'm going to give you the desire to do it and the ability to do it. Now, that's just amazing to me. And it wipes out any excuse for ungodly living. And it really wipes out any excuse for not loving this book. I should then, number three, or number two, it gives me the right path. That's what he means when he says right. It's not about right and wrong. You know, we see that word, it's right. And we think black, white, right, wrong. We think rule book, and we think, I don't want to get near that thing. But in reality, this word right means the right path through the difficult maze of life's temptations and the devil's deception. Here's what I want you to think, and this might shock you. This is not a rule book for right living. It's a guidebook for daily walking. Do you see the difference? See, if you come to this thinking God's the empire of my life, and he's going to say, foul, wrong, out of there. Who would want to come to this book? Well, I already know I'm a failure. I don't need to go there and find out more of that, right? But look, it's a guidebook for daily walking of those who know him. Don't think of God as the heavenly umpire and this the rule book by which he constantly is is calling you out in life. Think of him as your heavenly father who this is his guidebook for walking with you through life's maze. See, he wants to hold your hand so that we don't fall as we learn to walk in righteousness. He wants to keep just one step ahead of us so that we can follow in his footsteps. And the right path is found in this book. That's Does that help? You see, they are stepping stones to the life we always wanted, and when we obey them by faith in Him, our hearts will be filled with joy. And that's number three, the rejoicing of the heart. Obeying the Lord's commands by faith in Him will fill our hearts with His joy in spite of circumstances. Look back at this verse. See, we kind of read that verse and say, the statutes of the Lord are right. When I follow the right path, changing my circumstances. See, we, we would put in there, changing my circumstances. But what does he say? Rejoicing my heart in spite of circumstances. See, if David knew anything about unchanging circumstances, you know, it, it was David. I mean, this guy lived in a cave. He was the rightful king, and yet the false king, the carnal king Saul, was constantly out to get him for no good reasons, lied against him, slandered him, just was out to kill him. 
And yet David's able to write in that cave. I don't know if he was in the cave when he wrote it, but, but, but he believed it when he was in that cave. You know what? God's path is the right path, and it rejoices my heart, even though it doesn't change my circumstances. Now see, here's the sad thing. Often we read God's commands, and God's command says, take this path. Are you with me? Take this path. And we, we, we kind of trace that path out, and we see at the end of it, well, that's not going to change my circumstances. That's not going to change these people. That's not going to change the, the problem I'm facing. And we trace that out, and they say, well, because God's path isn't going to lead to a change in my circumstances, I'm not taking that path. And we decide what we're going to obey based on whether it will change, whether we think it will change our circumstances. When in fact, we should say, I'm going to trace that path out, and at the end of that, my heart is going to be rejoiced in the Lord in spite of my circumstances, so I'm going to take this path even if it doesn't fix anything. Even if it doesn't change anyone. Even if, if, if things get worse, I'm still going to take the right path. Why? Because I can find joy in the Lord at the end of it. Rejoicing my heart. Man, that's a powerful one. Well, let me give you another fourth reason. God's Word gives us discernment. I love God's Word because it gives us discernment. Notice what it says, verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, I'd summarize it this way. The Bible clearly reveals God's commands to provide discernment and delight. Here's what the commandment is. The Bible contains God's commands which are absolute, in their authority, and eternal in their purpose. When you see commandment, it's like the broadest description of God's word, and it simply means this. God said it, that settles it, we should do it. But we tend to look at the word of God like a buffet. I'll take that. I like that verse. I've tried that before, it was really good. I've tried that, and that was bad. That just doesn't look good. You know what? That looks like it's been there a while. I don't want to touch that. And that's what we do to God's commands. I like that one. I like that. I like that one because it really applies to this no good person over here that I'd like to see, you know, change. But I don't like that one because, ooh, that just exposed my rotten motive in judging that person over there. And so we go through the buffets. No, God's commands are pure. What's that mean? Number two. God's commands make clear what is confusing. They provide order in the midst of chaos, and they give light when everything is shrouded in darkness. Purity here means clarity. The purity of God's commands brings clarity to those who obey them. Listen, are you in a confusing place? God can make things real clear in His Word. Are you in a chaotic place? He can bring inner order to your life. Are you in a place of darkness and you see no way out? He can shine light into that darkness. That's the idea here. And what that does, number three, is the clarity of God's commands provides us with spiritual understanding and discernment to choose wisely and live godly. Now, enlightening the eyes. Again, rather unique phrase. means a couple things. Number one, it can mean spiritual understanding. It can mean discernment. I'm telling you what, 
I think the problem with the Bible is not that it's so unclear. I think the reason we don't get into it more is because it is so clear in how it reveals who we really are and who God really is. But there's another way that enlightening the eyes. In Psalm 38.10, let me read this. Psalm 38.10, My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. Now, is the psalmist saying he suddenly went blind? No, what, what he means is the joy, the sparkle, the, 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 the vitality of life has left my countenance. And what the Bible is saying here is the commandments of the Lord are clear and they will bring vitality to your innermost being. Your face will light up. Ruthie Kincaid, one of our members here, just went to be with the Lord with cancer and her caregiver was asking her, are you afraid? Are you afraid as she faced death? And she said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. I'm just going to miss my church family and I'm going to miss my family, but I... I'm not afraid of death. Why? Because her eyes had been enlightened. She had that vitality, that, 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 that vision of who God is and the hope of heaven that, that is greater than any circumstance, including cancer. You want to be more alive? You want your eyes to shine with vitality? You really want to live life to the fullest? Then get into this book. Get into this book. Number five. I love God's Word because it gives us eternity. God's Word gives us eternity. Notice what it says. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Here's the summary. The Bible teaches us to have a holy fear of God that draws us near to Him for all of eternity. Now, I think it's interesting here that in verse 9, David substitutes the fear of the Lord for a description of the Word of God. Now, that wouldn't come to our minds, I don't think. What is this? This is the Word of God. If you would have asked David, he might say, this is the fear of the Lord. And I think there's a couple reasons. He's, he's doing one of two things, and I don't know which one it is, and it doesn't matter, because both are true. I think he's saying, the Word of God, if you'll get in it, will cause you to fear the Lord. But he could be saying, if you fear the Lord, you're going to get into what? The Word of God. Either way, you cannot separate the Word of God from the fear of the Lord. Now, let's see what that means. Number one, the Bible causes us to fear the Lord and draw near to Him with a reverent fear and an obedient faith. I want you to understand that fearing God is seeing Him for who He really is. Not who we'd like Him to be and then responding to him in keeping with who he really is. So here's what the fear of the Lord is. I see God for who he really is, not who I thought he was. And then I see myself for who I am, not who I think I, I am on my good days. And then I respond to him by saying, Oh, Lord, help. <laughs> I need you. And you're my only help. But you're so holy. But I'm so glad you're all so mercy. And so I just come to you with fear and trembling and I ask for your mercy and your help in Jesus. There's so much more we could say here. I, I always go to uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I think of the description of that 
Lewis did of the Christ figure, Aslan. Aslan, am I saying that right, Jamie? And the character asks, is he, is, is he a man? And the talking beaver, yes, there's talking beavers in Narnia. Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, and the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Safe? Don't you hear what I'm saying? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. He's good. And this is your God. He is not safe, but he is good. Therefore, we fear him and run to him. Mark Buchanan wrote a book that drives this point home. Here's the title of his book. Your God is too safe. Rediscovering the wonder of a God you can't control. You want to rediscover the wonder of a God you can't control? Read the Old Testament. Read the Bible. Well, there's more we can say on that. Let's move down to number six. God's word promises us justice. It promises us justice. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Notice what it says. The Bible imparts a holy fear of God that draws us near to Him for all of eternity. Here's three points. The Bible is God's standard for judging the life and eternal destiny of every person. Listen, what's said in this Bible is a divine verdict rendered by the sovereign judge, and there's no court of appeals. It's said. It's settled. When the Bible renders a verdict on anything, it's true, it's accurate, it's final. Now notice that there's no benefit to this in, in, in this verse. Look at verse 9. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It doesn't give us a benefit. You know why? I think because when God says something as judge, it's settled. And David's like, wow, I just, I just cover my mouth. And I just say, you're God. I'm not. That settles it. Now, let me warn you as we go into this and wrap this up. As you read through, some of you have not read through the Old Testament in a long time or ever, and you're going to read some things that are crazy. You're going to say, why does he do that? I would never do that. I didn't think God would do that. In fact, I don't think God should do that. And you can get angry. You can get frustrated. You can get confused. May I suggest to you to say what David said? The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, even when they don't make sense. Even when it's not what I would do. Even when it's not what I would conceive God of doing. We should say with Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do?
be right. You just, it's just, it just is. So just keep reading. I have a dear friend that, that I, I'm not sure is saved, and I got to start reading through the Bible, and he came to Genesis 22 in the, in the sacrifice of Isaac, and he put the Bible down. He just couldn't handle it. I said, oh, no, that's not the place to stop because God came through. God provided his perfect substitute, his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I can't handle a God that, that commands child sacrifice. You're not yet there, so I still pray for you. Number seven, God's word brings great reward to those who respond to the Lord with a grateful heart and an obedient faith. I've taken you through six characteristics. Let me challenge you. Look at those last verses. And David gives us twofold response. One, I should have a grateful heart. Aren't you grateful for these benefits of God's word? Six awesome benefits. Now respond with a grateful heart. But then the second response is this, an obedient faith. Lord, your testimonies are there. Your law, your commandment, your precepts, they're true, they're sure, they're perfect, they're clean. There's only one thing left for me to do. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Man, I'm excited for what's going to happen in some of your lives as you read the Bible, particularly in 90 days, but all of us as we get into the Word for 2011. Man, unleash your gratitude for this awesome book who reveals an awesome God. And pour out your heart in a love that obeys what he says. Let's pray. Father, I pray your blessings on those that are about to embark on something that they might be scared about, they might be overwhelmed by, but by your power they can accomplish. Let us not get hung up on perfectionism, but let us get hung up on you and your revelation. Lord, we've seen six benefits today. But all those benefits can only be claimed by the seventh, the response of a grateful heart and an obedient faith. Rescue those who are here who don't know you and aren't sure that they know you. Revive those who do. But Lord, change us all to be more like you. And all God's people said, Amen. Love the Word this week. Love it with all your heart.